Coming up on today's show, the province lifting all public health restrictions as of July 1st. But the mayors and councils in our two largest cities, not so sure they want to get rid of the mask mandate. How are we getting along in terms of moving towards vaccine passports? Whatever you want to call them, we know you're going to need proof of vaccination to travel. Is our federal government on top of it? And brain implants. So a number of municipalities in Alberta are sort of watching and waiting and debating what they're going to do with the bylaw on masks that they have in their municipalities, including our biggest cities, Edmonton and Calgary. Calgary yesterday deciding they will not go in lockstep with the province and remove the mask mandate as of July 1st. They'll reassess as of July 5th. They want a couple more weeks of data before they make a determination. I guess the anticipation is cases may start to go back up. Um, despite the fact they have gone steadily down. Edmonton City Council will be having a similar debate today to try and determine what they're going to do with their mask mandate. And joining us now to discuss that is Councillor Andrew Knack. Councillor Knack, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, yes, we knew this issue would be coming sooner or later. There's no question about it. What are you anticipating? What are you looking for in this debate down at City Hall today? What uh, What sort of metrics will you be analyzing? Well, so that's the, I think there, there's the word that's important. We need to have some clear data, some clear metrics to help inform any decision. And, and fortunately, when we've been having these discussions as a council, we've had representation from Alberta Health or Alberta Health Services there to provide their official advice, there to answer our questions. And I think we need to understand from them what they're looking for, how they're changing their position. They've obviously gone from or will be going from mandating that in the form of an order to what I understand to be a strong recommendation. I want to understand is that what they're still, uh, is that still their position? And what would change that position? Do, are they looking for a certain percentage of people who have received their second dose uh, in order to change from a strong recommendation to whatever the next option is. So we need to have that type of data and analysis from our experts because, you know, I'll speak for myself, I'm, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a medical expert and I want to rely on those who are experts to help inform the decision that we make. Which I think is the way that we need to do it. But when we take a look at you know, the the science and the numbers that we've been told. And if the experts at the provincial level that you're talking about have decided July 1st, we don't need a mask mandate, um, why would the city even consider continuing with it? If the science and the medical evidence and the experts are saying July 1st, the province no longer needs one, why would the city still need one? Well, I think that the, where the debate will likely come around is their position. So about two weeks ago, we had a discussion about this. And what I remember hearing from our experts is that they are moving into what they would call a strong recommendation. And we have to remind ourselves that there are many things that health experts will strongly recommend that governments will still have laws around. Um, so, so we need to think about, is that strong recommendation, assuming that is still their position going into July 1st, reason to continue this for some amount of time? And if that is the case, what clear measure would you use to inform when it would be repealed? Because what I, I can't see happening is retaining the bylaw as is. The bylaw was scheduled to go until the end of this year. Right. I think that is clear that you don't need to do that. The debate is whether it's ready to go on July 1st when the province is doing it or if there is something else we should be looking at. Is it, and again, I, I'm, I don't know what that number would be. Do we, would our medical experts suggest that 50% of Edmontonians with their second dose 
um, be a right measure. Maybe, maybe they don't feel it's necessary. Maybe they feel that where we're at uh, would, and they might move from a strong recommendation. So it's, it's tough to say until we hear from them. But as with uh, any issue, or particularly one like this, it's already become fairly politicized. So I'm hoping that today's discussion is a bit more of a just a rational conversation mm-hmm. with our medical experts about the right way to proceed. Well, that's something that I think is really important to consider, and I'm sure you're well aware of it. Um, how much does that weigh into it? Because you know um, that if city council decides that, no, we're going to extend the mask mandate to, I don't know, let's pick a date, July 31st. Um, sure you know the division that's out there and you know the animus that is out there and the infighting and it's going to be even worse wouldn't you think does that weigh into the decision making process here i i i think it's impossible to ignore but i do think it's important for us to try to set that aside as best as possible i've received sort of three types of emails over the past two weeks one of them is from people who say it better end on July 1st because masks don't work anyways. They've never worked. And, you know, you're a puppet, yep. you know, just following the puppet master. Okay, so we're going to set those ones aside because I think we need to, we, we do know that they've worked. We do know they've had an impact. But I've had some very thoughtful emails about people say, you know, I'm tired. This has gone yeah. on for so long. Um, can we follow the province's uh, recommendation and the, you know, Dr. Hinshaw and her team? That's a very thoughtful and very understandable position to be. And I've also had very thoughtful emails from those who are saying, not that they want to see masks being worn forever, but they say, it feels like we've gone fairly quick. You know, we're going from 20 person outdoor gatherings as of, uh, I think it was a week ago to, you know, the sky's the limit. And some people are understandably a little nervous about that and what that means. So that is why, and I think both of those positions, those last two I just talked about are entirely valid and reasonable positions to have. Now it's uh, important for us to take those positions Go talk to our experts, ask them the right questions, use the right information to then make a decision that we feel will be what is best for Edmontonians and the health of Edmontonians coming out of a very serious pandemic, a life-changing pandemic. So we, we have to be thoughtful about this. Um, we're still open and back up in full on J- July 1st. The, the only question is, is council going to set a position that says for, let's say, a couple of weeks, like you say, a couple of weeks extra that when you're indoors in this fully opened province, you might still be required to wear a mask. Or are we going to say it's just strongly recommended? And that's what I think today's discussion should be focused on. But whatever the decision is, if the decision is not to remove it right away, there needs to be a clear number target so that people know this is exactly when it would change so that they're not feeling stressed out or uncertain that uh, this will go on forever. Yeah, and and I agree with that. And I think, you know, having that sort of timeline in place is is very, very important. But I I guess the question I have, Councillor, is, you know, and we've all said this, we've all said, follow the science, follow the medical experts, listen to what they're having Mm -hmm. to say. You know, the parameters were pretty well defined, you know, 70%, -hmm. 25%. um, The province is saying, we've reached that. Um, Our cases, I mean, we had eight cases in Edmonton yesterday, for goodness sake. And they're saying, you know, we, we don't need the masks anymore. So... I guess the question I have is, have we stopped trusting that science? Is there a different set of science that we're considering here? Because the experts that we've listened to all the way through this are saying we're done. I don't think we're listening to different experts. I think I'm hearing from the same people in our medical community in the province as everyone else is. 
And again, uh, what I've what I believe I've heard from the provincial experts, and again, we'll get clarification today, yeah. is that it's no longer going to be mandated, but right. still strongly recommended. And that is an important distinction. And it doesn't mean you need to keep a bylaw in place, but it also means you should be thoughtful about this because think about many things that have been strongly recommended in our lives and how government has over time put in rules related to that. So um, I think there's, there is an important difference to, to go through, but uh, we've also heard from our medical experts who are the same ones who were raising the flags when the second and third waves were going up. And some of those experts have said, we might want to think about retaining it for a little bit longer, but I want to hear from our provincial experts, the, one who's, the ones who have helped develop this policy over the years, because you're right, we have trusted them, yeah, yeah. we have listened to them, and that's what, where we're going to be going with today's conversation. Okay, we will be following it closely. Thank you for your time this morning, Councillor. I appreciate it. Anytime. You have a great day. You too. That is Councillor Andrew Knack, Edmonton City Council. Interesting discussion with Justin Ling, the freelance reporter, taking a look at how our government is coming along with plans to come up with some sort of proof of vaccination system. Um, we can call it a vaccine passport if we want. And we, we don't need to argue about whether or not, you know, there will be a vaccine passport and whether you like it or you disagree with it or it's against your rights or, or whatever the case may be. Um, we're just going to deal with the reality of it's already here. OK, in the EU, if you want to travel, you need to produce proof of vaccination. Hell, if you want to come back into Canada and avoid the quarantine rules, you need some way to um, present proof of vaccination as of July 6th. Uh, If you wanted to go see the Foo Fighters play on Sunday night at Madison Square Garden, you had to produce proof of vaccination. So, okay, let's call it proof of vaccination to do certain things, okay? Not vaccine passports. Maybe that'll make it easier. Um, It's already happening. It's going to continue to happen. Countries are going to make up rules as they go. uh, And Canada is going to have to do the same sort of a thing for Canadians who want to travel to the EU or who want to travel to this country that has a requirement that you be vaccinated. Those sorts of things are going to be something that we rely on the federal government to come up with a standardized way of doing this. And we talked to Justin Ling, who uh, said even some liberal MPs are saying, boy, we're behind the ball on this one. We're, we're not getting it done, and we're not ready, and we're, we know we, we have to come up with something here. Uh, so what's the plan, and how is it going to happen? Now, of course, um, it will have to come from the government in some capacity, but that doesn't mean that we don't have people right here in Alberta who have already done this, have already got started on this. Um, There's a tech developer in Calgary who has come up with a plan that he says is going to work. So we're going to chat with him right now and get all the details on this. His name is Zach Hussein, and he is um, CEO of Port Pass joining us now. Good morning, Zach. Thanks so much for calling. Good morning, Shay. Thank you for having me. So you've come up with a way that will work in terms of proof of vaccination. Tell us what Port Pass is. How does it work? Absolutely. It is a digital health pass. So I like what you said, you know, proof of vaccination, proof of certification. That's exactly what Port Pass is. And basically, an individual can have it on their phone or print it off. And it is a 2D QR code. So we actually follow every guideline that is set and the standard that's set by the government of Canada that they've been looking at from um, a world standpoint. So they look at the International Civil Aviation Organization, and I think about 182 
places already have it. Uh, 145 countries globally use it. So what this is going to be is a vis- visible digital seal of VDS, and um, Port Pass is able to do that. So you can do it for, like you said, the Foo Fighters um, in Canada. If we ever need it, we have it ready uh, for you know elections, um, government events. Everything is ready. So it's been uh, it's been an interesting journey, and to see the amount of interest. So we currently have about little over 500,000 Canadians registered, pre-registered, sorry. 500,000 Canadians have already signed up to be part of Port Pass? Absolutely, and it's been really exciting, and it's been uh, three weeks. Wow. Um, Okay, so first question that, of course, people are going to have about something like... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is, you're talking about some pretty sensitive information in some cases. What's the security like? Sure. So we've been looking at international security companies to work with in regards to this. But if we don't, we have the Canadian Digital Health Network where we use blockchain encrypted security. So basically from an issuer, say a, a lab, a pharmacy, a testing center, they will give a user, a pass, a port pass holder, the credentials, verified credentials at your negative test and your proof of vaccination and nothing else. So we only want that information transferred from the blockchain, which is already encrypted, to that user's phone. Once it's on their phone, it is removed from the blockchain and only stored on the user's phone. And they can show when they want to show it, how they want to show it, and where they want to show it. Because I think privacy is huge right now. And, and that's where we put it on the forefront. Before we started this project, we said privacy and security. Once we nail that, now we can look at, okay, how do we get Canadians abroad? Because that's where we wanted to focus. Yeah, I mean, and we know that this is going to be something that Canadians need, um, but, there's going to, but, but there's going to be different levels, right, in terms of what is the standard that we're setting. So you're going to need government involvement with this at some capacity, I would think, in order to have, you know, you can't just have any sort of vaccination record being accepted. There has to be some sort of standard to say, okay, this is legitimate and will be accepted by countries around the world. How are you working on that, and are you getting any government buy-in whatsoever so far? So around the world, 145 countries are using something called the ICAO VDS standards, which is what we do and we match. So we've aligned everything according to plan. Um, according to the government of Canada, they want a cryptographic infrastructure. We've got that ready. The, <laughs> from a government standpoint, I've sent about 1,200 emails, <laughs> and I haven't received one back, which is what? kind of disappointing that... I hope I do receive it because, you know, I have something here and I, I just even want an acknowledgement or a, a hug and open up the conversation to, 
let me present this to you guys. You know, I, we talk about technology, we talk about innovation in Canada and entrepreneurship. Well, you know, here's a great way to help with the times and I, it's a tool. So I really do hope that if they are listening that we can open up the conversation because I, I see it from a different standpoint, but it is aligned with the government. <laughs> You've sent... 1,200 emails to government officials saying we can do this, work with us, and you've received zero replies? Well, I do get uh, emails back, which are all auto-responders. Auto That's depressing. Good heaven's sake. Um, in terms of the final... It's hard. It's, it's hard. Yeah, because I was worried about users. I was worried about getting users. I was worried about everything else. And I thought, oh, the government would love this because, you know, this is what we need. And what a great, what a great story coming out of Canada, built by Canada for Canada. And um, it's, it's kind of a little discouraging, but I, I have my hopes up. And, uh, you know, I do believe that someone will hear it one day or see it. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems to make sense. Okay, uh, just one question I have for you. The 500,000 people who have... I don't know, have they expressed interest or have they actually signed up and participated? I mean, at this point, what does Port Pass look like? Do people get their records and, and get the verification and now they're good to go? And will other countries accept that? So currently, well, they are, but we haven't launched the app yet. So what we did on our website is done a pre-registration to see if there was interest and to see if Canadians were interested in this. And I mean, right now I can see it, 522,000 and something so hundreds a minute are just signing up all over canada and you know being from alberta it's really cool to see some some towns and places i've never even heard of in ontario well we're gonna have to follow up on this and see how it goes and especially i mean the the key here is going to be getting government buy-in and if you have a system and we we, you know we just did a story where they're they're way behind and they don't have a system uh at this point so uh, hopefully you guys link up and we get absolutely fingers crossed you know I, I i have a system and you know the other thing here is from a provincial standpoint uh manitoba is creating an immunization card nova scotia is looking the yukon's looking and i'm saying instead of recreating an individual app or an individual program at each place why don't we come together and uh centralize the system here where you know province to province uh, it works, and here the poor pass can do that. So I, I really do hope I can hear back from the government and uh, see how we can work together because uh, there's a lot of opportunity here and a lot of strengths that we can complement on. Hey, Zach, if people want to take uh, a look at this and get more information and, and sign up for Port Pass, what do they do? Absolutely. They can go to portpass.ca slash register. Excellent. Okay. Zach, thanks so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Shay. Bye for now. That is Zach Hussein, CEO of Port Pass. Think about it at this point. There's one place in this world where we're basically on camera or being recorded all the time, right? The one place where nobody has managed to penetrate yet is inside your mind. Your thoughts are pretty much secret, right? You can control those. But for how much longer? We're seeing amazing developments in technology where Computers can literally read your mind. They can use microchips implanted in the brain, analyze the signals, and translate them. It's a slippery slope. There is a lot of wonderful, fascinating, excellent advancements that can come from this. But there's a lot of ethical questions, too. So let's dive into that a little bit now. We have Jennifer Boger joining us. Um, Jennifer is the Director of Intelligent Technologies for Wellness and Independent Living Lab at the University of Waterloo. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. This really is a, a fascinating discussion, I think. Why don't we just start about the, the technology that we're talking about here? It exists, right? It's being used already, and there's some amazing experiments showing what can be done with this technology. Yeah, that's right. So, like all technologies, um, every year shows new advancements where we can do more and more with it. So, it does exist. It has existed in some form for quite some time. First uh, implant into the brain were back in the 80s, I believe. But as technology has evolved, of course, its use has become more sophisticated. What we can do with it is becoming uh, more and more advanced as we learn more about the brain and as well as more um, the technologies themselves that get implanted, things like biocompatibility, for example, where you can put a chip into your body and your body won't reject it. That's been a big problem and still is, but problems like this are becoming solved, which means the technology inches closer to being realistic for you know, use in the everyday population. And some of the things that can be done with this really is remarkable. I, I'm, you know, the article that I was reading mentions a study out of Stanford where, you know, if you're talking about people with um, spinal cord injuries, paralyzed people, things like that, accessing the brain and then having it control machines essentially opens up an entire window that we've never seen before. So how are they using it in that specific instance? In that instance, um, and again, we we have to be cautious because it's a sample size of one. So for some people, these experiments have worked quite well for, whereas other people, not as well. And we're we're not entirely sure why. It may have to do with placement. It may have to do with that person's ability to control their thoughts and things like this. Um, But as you say, we're getting closer to that. So people who are locked in, for example, can now perhaps have an option to be able to, you know, the first application we're really looking at that makes obvious sense is think to a computer so that they can type with their mind or control a cursor. Um, And being able to do so, it's quite obvious how that opens so many doors and makes it possible for people who are locked in to have more direct control and um, direct interaction with society, family, friends, and just You know, you can do a lot if you can access the Internet now, and that makes it possible for uh, that population to do so. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So let's talk about where this technology could go and probably will go, because if there's one thing we know about technology, if there's a problem out there and something that needs to be solved, it's pretty good at doing it eventually. So, um, you know, just in terms of mobility, if you're somebody who's paralyzed, you get basically a machine exoskeleton that you can control with your mind. So you're opening up all those kinds of doors, too. What other, you know, applications can this possibly be used that would be life-changing for some people? Right, and so uh, we think about... And a lot of people jump really quickly through the whole scenario, right? So you could think of the application where, um, and this is where I find it interesting to kind of have these conversations and these thought experiments of, well, what could we do with it? Because then that leads to what do we want to do with it and how, what's okay, what's not okay. So for example, you know, you could see one scenario where people choose to have this implanted and then they can just think to all their devices just normal people. It doesn't matter whether you're locked in or not. Um, But a lot of people also see the danger behind that. For example, a lot of people look at military use and what that might mean. Or um, if you have this type of technology where you're basically sharing your thoughts, then how do we safeguard it so that you have choice over who 
you know, has access to your thoughts and which thoughts they can access. Um, how do we train it so that we only share the thoughts we want to and don't accidentally think things we don't intend to and then have those show up in conversations or on work meetings or, you know. It, well, exactly, it, right? It goes on, yeah. I mean, you know, down the road, you could be talking like, you know, in terms of you want to talk about a lie detector test, if, if this kind of development happens and they can literally read your thoughts, I mean, the end of the privacy discussion is there. Um, but, you know, I, I think we should point out, and you make a good point, Jennifer, that it's not the technology that it's bad. It's, it's what we're going to do with it and how far we're going to let it go. And we need to be working on that. Yes. And that's, that's something I'm studying and quite passionate about as well is, I really believe we as a society, um, not just researchers, not just tech developers, but as a society, need better ways to talk about and think about uses of new technology and to, to go through that journey together. Because right now, the pace of technology is very rapid mm-hmm. um, and, and increasing. It's always increasing. So right now, you have people building it. And they're pushing what is possible so fast that we're not stopping to think enough about do we want to go there or how, more importantly, how do we want to go there? Um, Because, you know, once the technology is built, it's usually going to be used by someone. So figuring out ways of doing so that's more responsible and supports things like equitable access um, and privacy and consent autonomy, all these things is very important, but it's not something that tech developers can or should be expected to do by themselves. This is something that requires all the different parts of society to help support and engage in those discussions with tech developers. That's the thing. I mean, I I imagine in the labs, the tech labs where these kind of things are being produced, um, is there, does that work hand in hand? Are there ethicists? Are there these kinds of people working there? Or is it sort of those people are developing the technology and then somewhere else completely disconnected is another group of people saying, hey, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't do that. You know, can we bring those together? It, yeah, it's, it's like that. So people are starting to, and again, it's like any industry. It's very company specific right now or research lab specific where you have some groups that are much more, responsible and the pressure is on to do so more and more so a lot more companies are trying to have a more ethical angle toward tech development um, because they're people too and they are understanding that the implications of what they're building and they live on this planet too they engage in these societies too and so there are a lot of companies that are making great strides on trying to figure out how we work these types of conversations and how we work responsible development into the tech development innovation pipeline. Mm -hmm. And really when you do that, it's often more efficient because you're then solving problems before their problem. So you have a more robust technology that more people are happy to use because, you know, it checks the boxes, regulatory Passing regulatory requirements is easier. Longevity is likely. So, I mean, it is in best interest, but it's also very hard to do. It's not how we train people in STEM right now, which I think is another big issue, is a a lot of people who get trained in engineering and computer science 
there's a lot about optimizing battery life and processing speed, but there's not a whole lot on thinking about implications of what you build on society or the environment. So they're trained, you know, that while these things are important and interesting, it's not their job to do that. Um, so I think we have to tr- change how we actually train the people who build it so that they can engage better in those conversations and be a part of that journey. And, and like you say, that needs to be on the front end because once the technology is created, you know it's going to be used and trying to put that genie back in the bottle and say, oh, we need to put some regulation around this is so much harder than developing that hand-in-hand with the technology itself. Absolutely. And I think it's it's really difficult, too, to just point to government and say government needs to regulate it, which is true, yes. But as you say, you can't build the regulation after the technology right. because then the technology is already in use. And the other part of it, too, is then we're always running to play catch-up with things that have been built without necessarily thinking about impact as much as we should. Whereas we need to have this so the regs are developed hand-in-hand with the technology itself, where one is informing the other a little more in parallel. But again, that requires that people who understand how the technology works also are people who engage in policy. Because right now, the other problem we have is a lot of policymakers who may not be able to grasp the nuances behind the technology because it's so complex. We need a lot more crosstalk. It's really... really Do we ever? (laughs) Absolutely, we do. And we don't have a lot of time, Jennifer. That's the thing, right? I mean, this technology is already in existence in in some capacity, and making the next steps will probably happen pretty quickly. So we need to be on this. It is. And I think really important as well is just enabling choice. Yes. So that people can choose whether or not to engage with a technology. So when we take the example of neural implants, that one's, you know, a very decided choice. That's a very invasive operation. You know, it doesn't happen by mistake. You have to really <laughs> you have to really want that <laughs> for that to happen. So in this instance, it's a little more boxed in terms of, you know, you can't accidentally get a neural implant. Um, but, you know, there's other technologies that are more pervasive. They're all around us where perhaps we're not having enough choice about whether we get to engage with that or not, and if we choose not to, then do we get this treated the same way as someone who might? So there's difficult questions like that as well that we have to think carefully about. Yeah, it's a whole Pandora's box. Very interesting. Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. It's a fascinating discussion. It really is. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. That is Jennifer Boger, who is uh, the Director of Intelligent Technologies for Wellness and Independent Living Lab at the University of Waterloo. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.